Hi, this is David Flowers, Senior Pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S., and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast, and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the Giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. When was the lowest time in your life? Think about that for just a moment. Can you think of a time when you felt like you were just surrounded by darkness? It could have been after a death, a loss of some kind, devastating news or failure. Maybe at your lowest you felt like you were drowning in hopelessness and despair. It's an awful thing, isn't it, to feel that way? Some of you may be there this morning. You know, on some level, I'm sure that many of us, there's many of us who can relate to that feeling and experience, and it could be that you have felt either then or looking back now that you, that it had something to do with the dark situation you felt trapped in, that, that maybe you had something to do with it, right? But you didn't quite have the self-awareness or the clarity of thought to acknowledge your part in it or how to maybe get out of it. Well, that's what we're going to see this morning in Jonah chapter 2. Jonah chapter 2. If you want, you can go ahead and turn there. We'll, we'll get there eventually. Because Jonah knows what that is like. Last Sunday, we began a four-part series called The Gospel According to Jonah. And as I said last week, the book of Jonah is much more than a children's story. You know, sometimes the stories that we tell our kids aren't very much uh, a children's story. Uh, they're they're adult themed. <laughs> they're adult themed. This is why we need our parents and our pastors. As I, I thought about this, as we were giving the kids their Bibles to teach them to help them understand what the scriptures are saying and how it applies to their life. See, Jonah is actually a very serious story about calling, God calling his people to his mission of mercy. As we'll see this morning, it's not just the story of a reluctant prophet, it's actually Israel's story. It's the story of the people of God. And the word wasn't just for them, it's for us today. And the author of Jonah wrote in a highly sophisticated style with layers and layers of meaning that we won't have time to get into in this series. But don't worry, we can't miss the primary message of this ancient comedy. And if you're just joining us for this series and you don't know much about the book of Jonah, it's a story about a rebellious prophet who turns out rather ironically to be the most successful evangelist in the Hebrew Scriptures. It's a story about God's mission to save the lost, specifically to those that we can often love to hate, our enemies. And it's through this challenging book that we are being invited to look in the mirror and then hopefully 
answer the call of the missionary God. But before we look at chapter two, here's a quick recap and summary of what we looked at last week. Just real quick. First, I think it is helpful to know, to remember, that Jonah was an 8th century B.C. prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel, which was being threatened by the Assyrians. And so Nineveh is the capital of that evil empire. And when Jonah is called by God to go speak a prophetic word of coming judgment to his enemies there in Nineveh, he runs from God in the opposite direction. And right away, right away, we know that this story is not like other stories in the Hebrew Bible. Because no other prophet has ever imagined or dreamed that they could actually escape Yahweh, run from God, and get away from God. And in Jonah's own words, the God of the land and the sea by sailing for Tarshish. But that's what Jonah does. Jonah sails out of Joppa, that's modern-day Tel Aviv, and he heads 2,500 miles in the opposite direction to Tarshish, which I said represents a, a false Eden in the mind of faithful Israelites. And Tarshish is where Solomon got all of his gold against God's commands to build his kingdom the way he wanted, to make the world according to his own wisdom. And so the author of Jonah not only wants us to find the humor in a Hebrew prophet who lived among a people who weren't seafaring people, sailing with a bunch of pagans, who, by the way, feared Yahweh far more than his own prophet, to a false Eden to get away from God, the God of the land and of the sea. This is Jonah. And like the pagan sailors, we also want to say to Jonah, what in the world were you thinking? We're meant to see the humor and the irony and all of it because that's what kind of literary genre that we're dealing with here in this book. I told you this last week. Jonah is satire. You see, it's meant to expose Jonah's stupidity and his folly using humor and irony. Where the bizarre and the unexpected happen time and time again through this little book. You can also think of Jonah as an ancient comic book story, which is the reason why I've got this image here on the screen. As I shared last week, Jonah is a historical figure. We know this from his appearance in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, as a bad prophet. A bad prophet who supported a wicked king, but many scholars believe for good reason that the book of Jonah is historical fiction. You see, not just because he gets swallowed by a great fish and lives in its belly for three days and three nights, but because of the many internal literary cues that are in this book. Uh, to be clear, Christians should have no problem believing that God can do miraculous things. Amen? Amen. But the book of Jonah is not an ancient biography like the Gospels in the New Testament, for example, you, know, you take, take Luke, the Gospel of Luke, who said that his purpose for writing was to give a historical and orderly account of what happened in the life and the ministry of Jesus. They're going to a great extent to tell us Jesus was actually physically raised from the dead. It literally happened. So we need to read Jonah, though, and, and understand it according to the original intent of the author and not miss the literary gen genius and message of the book. Again, Jonah is clearly meant to evoke laughter. And like all good comedy, it should also provoke 
serious self-reflection among God's people. And if you'd like to look more deeply into this for your own personal study, I'd recommend a couple books to you. The first one being Jonah for Normal People by Jared Bias, a very funny and educational short read. Uh, so I recommend that one. And also the Brazos commentary on Jonah by Philip Carey, a scholarly and exegetical, but very readable commentary, which I'll be quoting from this morning. And also want to strongly suggest that you check out this resource, which we've mentioned quite a few times this past year, The Bible Project. Uh, the Bible Project has a website. They have a YouTube channel. Uh, they also have now an app that you can get on your phone. The app has animated educational videos, several Bible translations that you could actually read from there this morning, uh, a podcast. You can get a podcast on that app. And if you're really serious about studying the Bible, say, hey, I want to go deeper even with Jonah. They now have free seminary-level classes. You don't have to pay anything. Just take the time to watch it, to go through it, to learn, to do some of the exercises. It's all there at, literally, at your fingertips. So just wanted to let you know about some of those resources. Before we look at the scripture reading today and get into chapter two, let's pray together. Father, we, we come to you, Lord, and we open up our hearts and our minds to you. And God, we pray that you would speak to us. Holy Spirit, that you would illuminate our minds Help us to think thoughts maybe we've not been able to think up to this point that you, your voice would ride the waves of our thoughts. That you would find a resting place in our heart. Lord, that it would lead to, it would lead to conviction, to repentance, to transformation. Lord, set us free, free to love you, free to love our neighbor and free to love our enemies. Speak now, Lord, for your servants are listening and all God's people said, amen. When you're in the belly of the beast, that is the title of this second message in our four-part series. Last Sunday, we ended with chapter 1, verse 16. We're going to look there in just a minute in verse 17. Jonah had just confessed that he was the reason for this storm, and he told the pagan sailors just to hurl him over and the storm would stop. So they reluctantly do so, begging the Lord not to judge them for it, and then the storm, you'll remember, stopped. The sea became calm, and the sailors worshiped Yahweh. And meanwhile, Jonah, who's thrown overboard now, begins his descent down into the depths of the sea, down into darkness and despair. And just when you think things couldn't get any worse, look at verse 17 of chapter 1. Now the Lord, Yahweh, had arranged for a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights. Notice here, Yahweh arranged, the NIV says, provided a great fish. God is using the fish, hadag in Hebrew, for his purposes. Hebrew readers would not be expecting this fish, though. Not in the same way that you and I wouldn't expect this to happen. You see, they're reading this story. I think that they recognize that this is an ancient comedy, but they're not expecting a fish. Rather, they likely would have been expecting a tanin, that is the Hebrew word for a sea monster or a sea dragon. 
You see, we go back in the beginning in the book of Genesis, we see the sea monster was adopted from the mythological imagery of their pagan neighbors to refer to human as well as spiritual forces of evil. The sea monster was more than a mysterious, frightening creature that lived in the ocean. It also represented evil empires and the untamed forces of spiritual darkness that only God can defeat in his power. Remember, they're not a seafaring people. The ocean is a very scary place. Not just literal sea monsters, but these, again, representing something much more. We can even see this imagery in Revelation chapter 12 and 13, which speaks of a, of a beast. It speaks of a monster coming up out of the sea. So immediately, Jewish readers would have noticed this difference, expecting the sea monster instead of a big fish. Why? Well, here's one prime example from the scriptures that would have informed and shaped their reading of Jonah. Look at Jeremiah here, 51, verse 34. Just one example. Uh, this is Jeremiah the prophet who is prophesying after here after the exile into Babylon. He said, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon has eaten and crushed us and drained us of strength. He has swallowed us like a great monster, that is Tanin, and filled his belly with our riches. He has thrown us out of our country. Now, that looks awfully familiar, doesn't it? Swallowed us refers to exile. All throughout the Old Testament, when you, when you see that, swallowed us, it's referring to exile. And the great monster, again, the, word is he, the Hebrew word tanin, which is that sea monster, that dragon that represents spiritual evil as well as the evil empires that they fuel, and then thrown out, thrown us out, and the New Revised Standard Version actually literally says spewed us out. Now, what's going to happen to Jonah? He's going to get spewed out onto dry land. And so the Jewish readers would have seen Jonah's plight as symbolic of what had happened to them when they were carried off into exile and experienced a sort of death of the nation. But again, they also would have expected to read that the vehicle of Jonah's death was the Tanin, the great sea monster. They would have expected something that looked like this. Hmm. Kind of frightening. <laughs> Remember, this is the literal way of depicting not only the evil empires that have persecuted God's people, that's Assyria and Persia and Greece and Rome in the time of Jesus, but it's also a way of imagining the spiritual forces of evil that use those empires to bring about death and destruction, particularly their own. This is the Tanin. This is the great sea monster. And this is what you might expect a rebellious prophet of, of, or, or, or God's people to encounter when they run from him. But again, in keeping with the comedy within the book of Jonah, this is not what happens. It's not a great sea monster he encounters. It's just a big fish. <laughs> Listen to what Philip Carey says about this in his commentary on Jonah. He said, the great fish 
is a comic version of an ancient nightmare. The great monster of the deep that represent chaos and destruction. Scripture often reckons with the nightmares of ancient Near Eastern mythology and puts the images to its own uses. In Jonah, the nightmare is turned into comedy. The creature that swallows Jonah up is not one of the terrible monsters of the deep, but just a great big fish. Call it a monster if you wish, it's no big deal. Wherever you go in the world, the Lord who created it is there before you and can prepare a way for you even if the way is a great big fish. Hmm. Now back to Jonah, chapter 1, verse 17. Notice, said Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights. Three days and three nights is used in the Old Testament to signify a time of testing, a time of danger, a time of being near death. In Exodus, we're told that it took three days and three nights for the Hebrews to journey from Egypt to Sinai. Hmm. Of course, Jesus, we know, embodies this motif in his resurrection. Matthew 12, verse 40, as we heard last week, Jesus refers to uh, this Jonah story. Remember he says, when they ask for a sign, the only sign I'm gonna give you is what? The sign of Jonah. He's in the tomb for three days and three nights. Jesus there, of course, embodies this story of Israel, the story of death and exile. Not the first time we've seen that in the Gospels. And then look at verse one of chapter two. Then Jonah prayed to Yahweh his God from inside the fish, from inside the fish. It's interesting that fish here is, and it doesn't always work this way with ancient languages, that carry with it gender, uh, words carrying with it gender, but it is interesting that the fish is in the masculine form in chapter one, verse 17, when we first see the, the, the fish uh, occur. But in the, it's in the feminine in chapter two, verse one. Now, why might the author do that? It, it seems, and I agree with this, that the author is trying to indicate that the belly of the fish has become a womb for Jonah. Think about this. The belly of the fish has become a womb for Jonah. It's signifying a place or at least the opportunity for new life. And isn't that what Jonah needs? To be reborn. Now pay attention to a couple of things happening in the rest of this chapter. First, nearly every line in Jonah's prayer that, has been, that, is, that, that we read here in chapter two has been adapted from watery poems that span the entire book of, of the Psalms. So he's not inventing this, he's, he didn't write this on his own, he didn't come up with it on his own. He's pulling from various places in the book of Psalms that speak of a watery grave. 
And secondly, as Jonah prays in poetic form from inside the great fish, remember, notice that his prayer recalls his journey so far as he describes himself sinking further and further into the depths of the sea, into the depths of darkness. Let's look at that together, beginning in verse 2. He said, and we don't have time to look in, at the hyperlinks uh, throughout this prayer of, of all the other psalms that I was mentioning. You'll have to do that on your own, but it's, it's there. He said, I cried out to Yahweh in my great trouble, and he answered me. I called to you from the land of the dead. The Hebrew word there is sheol, sheol, sheol. It's, it's, uh, it's the grave, it's the place of the dead. And Yahweh, you heard me. Verse three, you threw me into the ocean depths and I sank down into the heart of the sea. Again, he wants you to imagine him sinking this prayer. You can, you can see it, he's sinking further and further into the darkness. He said, the mighty waters engulfed me. I was buried beneath your wild and stormy waves. And then I said, oh Lord, oh Yahweh, you have driven me from your presence. I mean, it does make me wonder, did Yahweh drive him? I thought he only ran on his own. Well, okay, we'll come back to that. Yet I will look once more toward your holy temple. Again, if we're imagining Jonah sinking here in the depths of the darkness of the sea, it's as if he's looking up through the water out of the ocean toward the direction of the temple in Jerusalem. I sank beneath the waves and the waters closed over me. Seaweed wrapped itself around my head. Certainly, is a metaphor for the darkness and the depths of the sea that we can find ourselves in. He said, I sank down to the very roots of the mountains. I was imprisoned in the earth. I was in the grave, whose gates lock shut forever. But you, O Lord my God, you, O Yahweh, you snatched me from the jaws of death. Have you thought about Jesus yet while you're reading this? <laughs> we'll come back to that more and more as we continue throughout the series. Look at verse seven. As my life was slipping away, I remembered Yahweh, and my earnest prayer went out to you in your holy temple. Those who worship false gods, they turn their backs on all of God's mercies. But I will offer sacrifices to you with songs of praise. Every praise. And I will fulfill all my vows, for my salvation comes from the Lord alone. And then finally, verse 10. Then the Lord ordered the fish to spit Jonah out onto dry land. Do you notice anything missing in Jonah's prayer? At this point, you might have thought, this is a pretty good prayer. Anything missing? Jonah shows no signs of true repentance in his prayer. He doesn't acknowledge what he's done running from God and his mission of mercy, revealing his cynicism and his anger toward his enemies and toward God, showing his hypocrisy here 
supposedly a prophet of God running in the opposite direction, or how he ended up in the belly of the beast in the first place. You see, he doesn't confess anything. If you look closely in the prayer, it's as if he ended up in this situation by random chance. (laughs) Well, we've never prayed that way before. (laughs) How can this be, right? God is showing him mercy. God turned the belly of the beast into a womb for Jonah's rebirth. And I actually think that the author here of Jonah is telling the story in a way that you're thinking, okay, now is he gonna do the right thing? Okay, now, surely now he's gonna do the right thing. But again, this is a book where unexpected things happen. So he doesn't confess. If you look closely, he doesn't even acknowledge what got him there in the first place. He doesn't acknowledge this. You, you, you see, Jonah is so, and this is what I think is happening here, and the reason I know this is because, well, I can see myself in Jonah sometimes. Maybe you can too. Jonah is so self-consumed that judging by his actions thus far, he began his journey by giving God the finger. That would be one way to look at it. And only now gets to the point of crying out, help me, God, but falls short of saying, forgive me, God. I hope you, hope you can hear the gospel in this because this is what the gospel entails. Jonah just gives the finger to God, just cries out, help me, God, but falls short of saying, forgive me, God. And as the gospel shows us, without confession of sin, there can be no real repentance. There can be no real life change. So Jonah, as we'll see in chapter three, in offering words, but without confession and without action, well, what do you think you're gonna get? As we should know by now, Yahweh doesn't just want words. He wants actions. He wants humble surrender and obedience not just pious prayers. So what should the reader understand about Jonah at this point? Well, I, I'm, I can say this confidently. I, I don't think he's evil. He's not an evil person. No, he, he's not an evil person. He's just a fallen human being, just like you and me, <laughs> right? He's like us in a lot of ways. How often do we offer words but no action? We come to our moment of crisis in the belly of the beast, but we don't confess and we don't repent. Maybe we've given God the finger. Maybe we we cry out for him to help us, but there is no confession and repentance. You see, and, and like Jonah, we want God, if we're honest, I've certainly felt this way before, we want God to be like us. We want God to be like us. We don't always confess and comply with his will, but Jonah also seems to be clueless. That's because his self-centeredness has led to a lack of self-awareness that now keeps him from recognizing his own hard-heartedness. Maybe I should say that again. That's because his own self-centeredness has led to a lack of self-awareness that now keeps him from recognizing his own hard-heartedness. Therefore, he's unrepentant. He doesn't appear to repent. You might say, well, repent of what? Let's be clear. Repent of what? Well, repent 
from rebelling against God's calling on his life to be what God wants him to be and to do. Repent of his refusal to be humbled and to have his stubborn, cynical, callous heart changed. Repent of his idols, which are always at the heart of our sin. There's always an idol down there at the base of it. And so what are Jonah's idols? His idols are wanting a vision of the good life that doesn't include God's authority over him. It's, it's his poor portrait of God, clearly. We know this because he wants God to be like him. He wants God to feel the same way that he does about his choices, about his sin, about his enemies, and for God to do what he thinks that God should do. Do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Maybe it's just me. <laughs> I think you know what I'm talking about. And I, and I think that the author knows that we know what he's talking about. And here's the thing. Even though Jonah can appear, as I said, rather pious in chapter 2 in the prayer, his life up to this point, and unfortunately, as we continue to read in chapters 3 and 4, we'll contradict his prayer and all of his empty words that he fears Yahweh. And yet, yet, God will show him mercy. God will comfort him. And God will give him a chance at rebirth and new life, just as he does with us. So the question is, what will we do? What will we do when we're in the belly of the beast? When we're in the belly of a great fish, what will we do in our darkest hour? Will we allow God to turn that belly into a womb that he can use for our renewal and rebirth to transform us? What will we pray in that place? But most importantly, what will we do when we emerge and are spewed out and are placed once again on dry ground? You see, the narrator, I think, with irony and humor, as we'll continue to see in chapter 3 and 4, invites us, church, not to be like Jonah. And I could say more about this, but I also think this is a message for the American church who's entered into exile. Will we look back, learn the lessons, experience the belly of the beast as a womb, and then undergo rebirth? Or not? Brothers and sisters, may we be quick to humble ourselves to ask God to reveal the attitude of our heart, to be honest, right? To, sometimes we, we, we put up guards and defenses when we know we might hear something we don't want to hear, but I guarantee you that if you just ask the Lord, Lord, reveal my sin to me, I've always found he's really quick at answering that one <laughs> because he knows that that sort of thing, it hinders us from knowing him and seeing him rightly and walking in freedom and following and joining his mission of mercy. You see, 
See, seeing God rightly, I, I think that's the way to view it. This isn't a vehicle for Jonah's punishment. It's a vehicle for his salvation. May it be the same for us when we find ourselves in the belly of the beast. Finally, here are a few theological takeaways that we can apply to our lives with God's grace. Maybe you've seen more, but these are just three that I see that just really jumped out at me. Number one, it's, it's good to pray in the belly of the beast, but it helps to be praying before you get there. Amen? I probably don't need to say a whole lot about that, but I think you get the point. We certainly shouldn't just be giving God the finger and running and eventually to say, help me God, and stopping there, that's true. But really, if Jonah had been in a different place, if Jonah's heart had been different, this whole story wouldn't have happened. Not quite this way, anyways. Number two, God wants us to fear, that is, revere him, to worship him with our words, but also with our actions also to repent. So we might just stop this morning and say, God, am I, have I emptied up any empty words, any empty prayers? Am I, just, am I just thinking about the Christian life? It was about being on the right side of issues or saying the right things, you know, uh, and, and virtue signaling? Or, or am I really serious about having my heart changed and transformed? Lord, speak to me about that. I think that's an invitation to us. And then lastly, number three, what might seem like a vehicle of death, as I said, can be used, can be used by God to give us new life. Would you think about your situation that way? Remember at the beginning of the message, I asked you to think about the, the, the worst time, the lowest time in your life, surrounded by darkness, and maybe some of you are there this morning. Do you believe Maybe I should ask it this way. Will you believe that God can turn that belly into a womb? You say, how, how does that happen? Well, it's real easy for God. Not so easy for us. The way for that, happen, for that to happen, for that belly to be transformed into a womb that you might be reborn is surrender. Confession, repentance, total surrender to God. And brothers and sisters, you watch what God can do to change your life. But how so many don't get there because more of us than we would like to admit are like Jonah. And now for our post-teaching segment. Last Sunday, we introduced this post-teaching segment in the book of Jonah. Remember, at the end of each message in this series, we want to connect the story of Jonah to our everyday lives. And a way to connect Sunday to Monday, you see, in our faith for the rest of the week. So we're inviting you to share God's missional heart through your own life. And this morning, we've invited Krista Reitenauer to come and share with us. Krista, would you come up here, please, and give her a hand as she comes. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for doing this. Sure. Two questions. I think you're prepared for them. Hopefully. The first one, where will you be this time tomorrow? This time tomorrow, I will be uh, planning for a gymnastics camp 
that I will be leading at, uh, in June at the West Shore Y. All right. All right. I'd also mention that my Monday schedule looks very different based on the season of year. Some Mondays I'm teaching wellness courses at Messiah. Some Mondays I'd be taking a child to a doctor's appointment. Yeah. Some Mondays just doing work around the house. And some Mondays, as is the case tomorrow, I will be gymnastics planning for my job. All right. Yeah, I'm sure that there are quite a few folks in the room that can resonate with that. Not every Monday uh, looks the same at 11.39 tomorrow, right? So the, the second question, how can, Krista, how can we pray for you as you engage in God's mission of mercy? I would be glad for prayer that no matter what I'm doing on any given day, that I would just be aware of God's presence. Yeah, and that I would good. be open to the way that he would want to use me as an instrument of his love and yeah. his grace in the lives of others. Oh, that's great. That's great. Well, we can pray for you now. Can we do that? Let's pray together. Father, we lift up Krista to you, and we pray, God, that you would give her a, a keen sense and awareness this time tomorrow of your presence. Would you just surround her with, with your Holy Spirit? Would you empower her and anoint her as she joins you on this mission of mercy? And Lord, for all of us who are in this sanctuary right now, worshiping together, we pray the same thing. We pray and ask it for ourselves, Lord. Give us a sense of your powerful, comforting presence. Lord, we need to know that you're with us. Lord, go with us as we seek to confess and to repent and for those bellies to turn into wombs. Change us, Lord. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks, Krista. Appreciate it. So church, again, I ask you that. Where will you be this time tomorrow, and how is God inviting you to join his mission of mercy? What is God saying to you, and what will you do about it? One more time we pray, Lord, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us. Holy Spirit, that you would transform our hearts. God, help us to get to the place where we say, I am yours. Help us to get to the place where we confess and we surrender to your will. Lord, help us to get to the place maybe where we need to say that we are sorry or that we forgive someone. Help us to get to the place, Lord, where we, we let go of the things that we're holding on to that are killing us. Lord, help us to let go of trying to control our own life. We're expecting you to be more like us. Whatever it is, Lord, Holy Spirit, help us to surrender. For it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.